This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We will start out today's show with a bit of good news, I think. And I wish Radio Parallax could take credit for this item, but, um, well, I don't think we can. But the fact of the matter is, San Francisco has become the first major city to ban local government agencies' use of facial recognition, becoming a leader in regulating technology criticized for its potential to expand widespread government surveillance and reinforce police bias. The Stop Secret Surveillance Ordinance passed 8-1 to in a vote by the Board of Supervisors Tuesday night. The ordinance will implement an all-out ban on San Francisco city agencies' use of facial surveillance, which tech companies such as Amazon and Microsoft currently sell to various U.S. government agencies, including in Amazon's case, U.S. police departments, and in Microsoft's case, U.S. prisons. The brief blurb sent to us by listener Don notes that today, facial recognition technology is widely used by the Chinese government for Orwellian mass surveillance of ordinary citizens in public life, most alarmingly to target the Uyghur Muslim ethnic minority in what's been called automated racism. Well, we've talked about this subject on this very program and hope that at least one of those supervisors may have heard a broadcast and helped influence their vote. Since I started out with a bang on this topic, let's continue. Jack Polson, writing in the New York Times, said U.S. tech companies will keep building surveillance tools that violate human rights until there are better protections for whistleblowers and conscientious objectors who stand up to them. Said Polson, I resigned from a senior position at Google over ethical concerns about Project Dragonfly, the effort to modify search to meet the censorship and, and surveillance demands of the Chinese Communist Party including the ability of the government to track queries by their phone numbers. Polson said Google only halted Dragonfly after its privacy team stood up to management. He further notes internal organizing also led to the termination of two dubious U.S. military contracts and forced changes to the company's sexual harassment policies. Said Jack Polson, tech companies are spending millions lobbying to limit employees' legal rights. Legislators should counter that with guaranteed protections for whistleblowers and collective action. After that bang-up start, I'd like to ratchet it down just a half notch or so with this item from, well, I guess we'd put it in the humor file. It comes from The Guardian and notes that a historian has discovered a royal decree issued to Donald Trump's grandfather ordering him to leave Germany and never come back. Friedrich Trump, a German, was issued with the document in February 1905 in order to leave the Kingdom of Bavaria within eight weeks as punishment for having to do mandatory military service. And also failing to give authorities notice of his departure to the U.S. when he first emigrated in 1885. Roland Paul, a historian from Rhineland-Palatinate who found the document in archives, told the tabloid Bild, Friedrich Trump emigrated from Germany to the U.S. in 1885. However, he failed to deregister from his homeland and had not carried out his military service, which is why the authorities rejected his attempts at repatriation. I didn't realize this, but Trump emigrated to the U.S. at age 16 initially to escape poverty and attracted by 
a gold rush. <laughs> he quickly turned his attention to catering for the masses of other gold hunters up in Alaska, later allegedly running a brothel for them, and there made a fortune. He habitually sent the gold nuggets, which his customers regularly paid for their food, to his sisters, who had already immigrated to New York and started trading in property. Returning to vi- on a visit to Calstad in 1901, Trump fell in love with Elizabeth Christ, whom he married a year later, returning with her to the U.S. But when she became homesick and wanted to return to Germany, the authorities blocked his attempts to resettle. In an effort to overturn the royal decree, Trump wrote an obsequious letter appealing to Prince Regent Leupold, addressing him as the much-loved, noble, wise, and righteous, sovereign, and sublime ruler. But the prince rejected the appeal, and the Trumps left for Germany for New York with their daughter in July 1905. Elizabeth was then three months pregnant with Donald Trump's father, Fred. The article closes with noting that uh, residents of Karlstadt, where Friedrich was born, which is a small wine-growing town of about 1,200 people in southwest Germany, joke that the blame for Trump becoming U.S. president lies with the German authorities who threw his grandfather out. They so far have shown little enthusiasm for claiming the businessman turned politician as one of their own. And speaking of a Friedrich, and how's that for a segue, we have a quote here from Friedrich Nietzsche, to which to start the program. He noted, In heaven, all the interesting people are missing. And attached to the same little piece of paper, I have the quote I was looking for on last week's program, but could not find. This is the actual quote from writer E.B. White, who said, Humor can be dissected as a frog can, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. We previously truncated that quote as, analyzing humor is like dissecting frogs. Very few are interested, and the frog dies of it. Take your pick. I like them both. The more succinct version we, we do give an attaboy to. And in fact, I'm going to do a more succinct version of a joke previously used on Radio Parallax because, well, I like this version. An industrialist was horrified to find the fisherman lying beside his boat smoking a pipe. Why aren't you fishing? asked the industrialist. Because I've caught enough fish for the day, said the man. Why don't you catch some more? What would I do with him? You'd earn more money, then you could have a motor fixed to your boat, go into deeper water, and catch more fish. That would bring you money to buy nets, more fish, more money. Soon you'd have enough money to buy two boats, even a fleet of boats. You could be rich like me. What would I do then? And you could sit back and enjoy life. What do you think I'm doing now? And I've been led to believe that the strange word that they were coining some years back, the meme, was supposed to be a, an individual unit of, of culture as a gene, as an individual unit of genetics. I thought it was pretty inane. But I guess at this point it is morphed into being that picture with a caption that gets sent around on social media. Thus it is I hold in my hand a meme. It is an underwater photo. I, I believe a composite photo, but there's two items in the photo. An immense shark. Next to it is a man with an underwater camera. The caption is, This is the most dangerous animal in the world, responsible for millions of deaths every year. By his side, we can see a great white shark swimming peacefully. And speaking of great white sharks, I paid a visit to Southern California last week to the beautiful island of Santa Catalina. 
The public transport on the island sometimes leaves a little bit to be desired, at least it, it was last week, when the trip from two harbors, the Isthmus and the east part of the island, to the island's only true town, Avalon, turned out to be $59 per person one way. But uh, it might have been worth it because um, one of the drivers, one of the many drivers I had, was an exceptionally entertaining individual and described an incident, I guess it happened the year before, a couple years earlier, wherein he was piloting the submarine-slash-glass-bottom boat that the tourists uh, can uh, pony up for and then, you know, be taken out and driven around and see the marine life out, out the portholes. It's, it's not a real submarine, of course. It doesn't fully submerge, but it's a good imitation of one. And so it was that our captain was out, I guess, presumably somewhere outside the harbor. I think he was pretty close to the harbor in Avalon with a bunch of people on board from a cruise ship when uh, <laughs> pulling up alongside them was the singular figure of a 20-foot-long great white shark. Everybody on board was pretty stunned by the sight. When he pulled back on the harbor, he said, you never saw people get off a boat faster than that. Greeting him in the harbor were some of the city fathers who apparently had gotten word from fishermen or someone a little bit further offshore that they were being paid a visit by a disturbing visitor. So when they asked the captain what he had seen, he said, a great white shark. And they said, well, you know, uh, know, dolphins look an awful lot like sharks. We're thinking that what you saw was was actually a dolphin. You can imagine the visions in their head of what this would do to the tourist trade if it got out that uh, the harbor was being cruised by great whites. He just sort of chuckled and said, you know, I've been around the block a few times. I think I know a shark when I see one. And I guess uh, eventually the word did get out that uh, there had been a, a large shark spotted in Catalina, but It was downplayed pretty well, and no harm was done to the tourist industry. But yet it was another one of those examples we see uh, in journalism sometimes, and in life itself, wherein, you know, you're just told, well, you you, you couldn't have seen that. No, that's, that's not what you saw. There's lots of reasons why that sort of thing may come up, but dear listener, if you see something sometime and someone tells you you didn't, well, stick to your guns. Which brings up another meme, which I have, which I find quite amusing. It is a composite photo of a flying saucer hovered above a lake, of which the head and neck of the Loch Ness Monster is protruding, and riding bareback on him, flipping the bird, is Sasquatch. Now, if you did see something like that, you, you may want to step back and, you know, question yourself. And uh, in shows in the past, we've, we've taken a pop at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for good reasons. So I have in my hand here an article that is uh, partly good but partly bad, I think. The title is The Giraffe Population Dwindling, semicolon, U.S. to Consider Granting Endangered Status. Apparently in Africa there's been a 36 to 40 percent decline in the population of giraffes since 1985, so various groups are petitioning the Fish and Wildlife Service to grant them this status. The article notes that the last Thursday's decision means that the organization will conduct its own review, which can take up to 12 months to assess whether giraffes merit inclusion on the endangered list. That review is followed by a public comment period after which the agency announces whether the species will be covered under the Endangered Species Act. 
And the saddest part about this, perhaps, is that when they have a public comment period, there will no doubt be people coming forward to come out on the pro side of killing giraffes. Someone sent me a photo last week of big game hunters, quote-unquote, that went over to Africa and shot an elephant, and then while they were at it, shot the two baby elephants that were with the mother. Yeah, some folks are going to want to keep trophy hunting, uh, you know, out there. You know, last year I did, I stumbled upon a group which was called the Coalition Against Political Assassinations. It turned out this group actually does do some good work, but (laughs) it did strike me that there probably is no corresponding coalition for political assassinations out there as far as we know. That's the CIA. Hmm, no comment. And as part of our continuing bemused coverage of the new, this news story, this scandal about uh, college admissions, where apparently they're embarrassing uh, some, some actress who appears in a, a soap opera for helping her child get into college w- you know, without the child's knowledge, supposedly. And this is, this is really a, a, a big scandal affecting, you know, a, a lot of liberals, apparently, and, 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 and actors and actresses. Not, not people that, like, run the country that operate on Wall Street. They would never do a thing like that. Let's see, wasn't it Donald Trump's professor at the Wharton School who said he was the dumbest student he ever had? But anyway, as regards this this scandal of college admissions, the Los Angeles Times is reporting that the family of a Chinese student admitted that the family of a Chinese student admitted to Stanford paid $6.5 million to the man at the heart of the college admissions scandal. So far, 33 parents have been charged in the fraud investigation, but none is accused of spending sums that even remotely approach that figure. $6.5 million. What do you suppose that guy did with the money over with the admissions people at Stanford? I suspect favors were exchanged. Let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for giving the extra effort with the news, uh, well, with the admission by the organizers of Ireland's Belfast City Marathon that due to human error, the course of last year's race was 0.295 miles too long. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for choosing your goals wisely, in our opinion, with the news that a 72-year-old French adventurer and former paratrooper has become the first person to cross the Atlantic in a barrel. Jean-Jacques Savine set off from the Canary Islands in December in his 10-foot reinforced plywood vessel, which has no motor, no oars, and no sail, and was propelled only by ocean currents. After four months at sea and having traveled 2,930 miles, during which he survived on canned food, freshly caught fish, and reportedly a block of foie gras, Savin finally reached the Dutch Caribbean island of St. Eustatius. He wrote on Facebook, naturally, This is the end of the adventure. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for being a uniter and not a divider, with the news that a Washington state Republican legislator told an audience at a God and Country event to prepare for a civil war with communists. 
Recording the event shows that Representative Matt Shea said America is no longer a beacon of Christianity because of compromise and that liberty must be kept by force. Another speaker said Christians should buy AR-15s and plenty of ammunition. Praise the Lord, pass the ammunition. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, pass the ammunition. Praise the Lord, pass the ammunition, and we'll all stay free. And I must say, while I was on vacation, I, I was pleased to uh, be off of any kind of screen device for at least 23 and a half hours a day. At breakfast one morning, I jokingly remarked to the room, geez, I wonder what Trump's gotten into today. And uh, one of the persons staying in the hotel then spoke up to say, well, apparently they got his tax records. She noted that he hadn't released them, but the New York Times had gotten a hold of them. And indeed they had. President Trump who made quite a name for himself by portraying a successful businessman billionaire on TV in much the same manner, as we have noted in the past, as Gilligan portrayed a castaway on a remote island on TV. Turns out to have not been such a successful businessman slash billionaire, according to his tax records. Between 1985 and 1994, Donald Trump reported $1.17 billion in losses. Meaning, if you divide by 10, that every year for 10 straight years, he averaged a loss of $117 million. During eight of those 10 years, Trump avoided paying any taxes at all, courtesy of these sizable losses. The New York Times said... It acquired official IRS transcripts detailing Trump's frenzied acquisition and construction of hotels, casinos, and an airline funded by hundreds of millions of dollars in loans. Most of those investments failed, even though at the same time, Trump was burnishing his reputation as a master businessman with 1987's The Art of the Deal, which, as we know, he didn't write. Tony Schwartz did. When compared with Internal Revenue Service information on other high-income earners, Trump, notes the magazine, appears to have lost more money than nearly any other individual American taxpayer. Trump called the report a hit job, saying other real estate developers use write-offs and depreciation. You always wanted to show losses for tax purposes, Trump said on Twitter. It was sport. Yes, a man who's done everything possible to avoid any taxes to support the United States federal government is now at the head of the United States federal government. Well, it's executive branch anyway. As someone who likes to attend events at the Commonwealth Club on a regular basis, I get uh, notices from them, courtesy of email, and I see that George Will is now going to come to speak in San Francisco sometime in the near future. George Will is rather famous for having been for many, many decades one of the voices of American conservatism and one of the proudest supporters of the Republican Party that America had to offer. Well, in the Trump era, George Will has left the Republican Party. We might uh, travel to go hear him say why that is. Writing on this topic in the Washington Post, Max Boot said, This corruption extends beyond the White House. 
Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, who once called Trump a kook and, quote, unfit for office, unquote, now shouts pro-Trump conspiracy theories at Senate hearings. Conservative commentators who used to denounce Trump have surrendered to him, fearful they'll be exiled from the GOP if they criticize dear leader. By the way, the Mueller report sold almost 43,000 copies in the last week in April, vaulting to the top of the week's New York Times bestseller list. We'll have a thing or two to say about that before the show is over. But yes, we do have to note that many people, uh, myself included, uh, ask what in the hell has happened to the Republican Party? Here's some more food for thought. New research shows that 34% of whites are bothered when they hear a foreign language being used in public places. And apparently the same is true of 25% of blacks, 24% of Asians, and 13% of Hispanics. Should be noted that overall, 70% of Americans put their level of unease at not much or not at all. But the survey found that white Republicans are far more likely to be put off by foreign language speakers than their Democratic counterparts. According to the Pew Research Center, 47% of such Republicans say it would bother them some or a lot to hear people speak a language other than English in a public place. It should be noted that the United States has no official language, although a number of states have declared English to be theirs. Another odd thing about this, uh, this poll that is worth mentioning is that solid majorities of every demographic group, be they blacks, whites, Democrats, Republicans, would prefer employers not to take race into account when making hiring decisions, even if doing so resulted in less diversity within the company. And I believe you mentioned this on last week's program, and let's mention it again. According to The Economist, Republican-led state legislatures are overturning ballot initiatives everywhere in the country. The most controversial case cited was one in Florida, where 65% of voters passed a constitutional amendment to the Florida Constitution, allowing felons who had been banned from voting in Florida to register to vote so long as they had completed all terms of their sentence, including parole or probation. And, and by the way, I believe in most states of the Union, uh, felons can have their voting rights restored. Florida was one of the notable exceptions, which wound up playing a role back in the 2000 election. We're not going there today. Anyway, apparently some Republican state legislators in Florida have introduced a bill that would add additional requirements to the so-called returning citizens to pay all their fines and legal fees before being allowed to register to vote. Just to demonstrate that Democratic politicians are determined to, whenever possible, shoot themselves in the foot, we have this. The Boston Globe notes that you got to hand it to Bernie Sanders. The high-minded Democratic presidential candidate never puts any constraints on his principles, even when they're bound to alienate most American voters. Other Democrats have called for states to give back to felons the right to vote after they pay their debt to society and leave prisons. But Sanders wants to go a big step further, giving all prison inmates the right to vote. Asked at a CNN town hall if he'd support enfranchising people like the Boston Marathon bomber, Sanders immediately said, yes, I think the right to vote is inherent to our democracy. Apparently, even Cher, described as a Hollywood super liberal, then <laughs> tweeted a horrified, murderers, rapists, child molesters, Boston bombers, they still deserve the right to vote. It was noted that with positions like that, Sanders might outdo lefty George McGovern, who only won one state back in 1972. But back to the Republicans. I'm sure it's the Republicans in these states down in the South that are uh, passing all of these laws about 
banning all abortions, no exceptions, no exceptions for rape, no exceptions exceptions for incest, no exceptions, and they push the, the clock back to six weeks, at which time uh, the fetus can have a heartbeat. Yes, they're making abortions illegal after six weeks, which is completely contrary to what is in Roe v. Wade. And of course, this is going to, you know, no doubt bring a challenge of that law based on its constitutionality, which is going to go back to the Supreme Court. Let's see whether they built a 5-4 to four conservative majority to overturn it. God forbid. It is worthy of note, perhaps, that Brent Kavanaugh surprised everybody by siding with the court's four liberal justices and noting that Apple can be sued for some of its uh, uh, monopolistic practices, charging higher prices in their stores, etc., Wouldn't it be nice if Justice Kavanaugh refused to go along with the other four conservatives to overturn Roe v. Wade? Or maybe one of the other four, Roberts perhaps, will do the right thing? By the way, as you're no doubt aware, that opinion in no way necessarily reflects the opinion of the station you're hearing this on. Or their supporters, or their sponsors, or anybody else. And, rather horribly, it appears that the U.S. is inching a little bit closer to a showdown with Iran. The New York Times notes that the Trump administration is playing a dangerous game in Iran. Its pressure tactics have already pushed Iran into recession and its inflation rate to nearly 40%. The decision to brand the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, a terrorist group, was made over Pentagon objections and prompted Iran to slap the same designation on American forces in the Middle East. The guy that's really been pushing for us to uh, to go after Iran has been John Bolton. Very worthy article about him in the May 6th issue of The New Yorker, pieced by Dexter Filkins. John Bolton has for some time been one of the leading hawks in the Republican Party. It should be noted that at least a bit of this is understandable due to the fact that his wife was on board the plane that crashed into the Pentagon on 9-11. When Trump got elected, Bolton wanted to be named Secretary of State but evidently his candidacy was derailed by members of the Republican establishment like Robert Gates, the former Secretary of Defense, and Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State, who suggested that Trump appoint Rex Tillerson, an oil CEO. Gates told the author, I want to recommend someone who would be good. One weekend in 2017, John Bolton and General H.R. McMaster were invited to Mar-a-Lago for an audition to become National Security Advisor. McMaster won at first, but he apparently acquired enemies outside the White House. Mort Klein, the head of the Zionist Organization of America, told the author he believed that McMaster was hostile to Israel, citing offenses that range from advocating Palestinian self-determination to dodging a question about whether the Western Wall is in Israeli territory. Klein began a quiet campaign against McMaster with help from Sheldon Edelstein, the Republican casino magnate, and Safra Katz, the CEO of Oracle, both of whom are fervent supporters of the Israeli right wing. So before long, Bolton became the new national security advisor and has been pushing very hard for sanctions and even military action against Iran. By the way, since the early 2000s, Bolton's been telling anyone who will listen that North Korea will never seriously consider giving up its nuclear weapons no matter what threats or inducements that Americans make. This article started off this way. Earlier this year, as Donald Trump prepared to meet the North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un in Vietnam, he took a moment in the State of the Union address to congratulate himself on a diplomatic masterstroke. If I had not been elected President of the United States, we would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea with potentially millions of people killed. 
The article notes that for Bolton, this summit represented a conundrum. Two months before he entered the White House in April 2018, he had called for a preemptive war with North Korea. And, of course, after declaring a moratorium on short-range missiles, uh, Kim Jong-un fired a few more off last week, sort of as a provocation to us. How anyone anyone can continue to believe that North Korea presents a credible threat, a nuclear threat to the United States, is kind of beyond us. Particularly if you'll dig out your Economist May 4th issue of this year and take a look at the photograph of the Korean Peninsula at night. The country pretty much goes dark. I'm amused by the fact that the International Monetary Fund uses the night lights as a gauge of economic activity, which I guess you can do if you have no other data to work with. Apparently back in 2013, a group of scholars compared luminosity and GDP within rural China, obtaining an equation for estimating economic output from light. Turns out not only does North Korea not have a whole lot of light at night, it's had a 40% drop in luminosity over the last couple years. The Hermit Kingdom is not going to take on Uncle Sam anytime soon. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. we got plenty more in our second segment.